0: This is Pennsylvania Legacies, the podcast series from the Pennsylvania Environmental Council. I'm Josh Rawlerson. In case you hadn't heard, money's tight lately for the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. And in the conservation world, that means more and more competition for a dwindling share of available funding. And that's fundamentally changed the way funders like DCNR think about grant making.
1: Previously, people doing grant applications really just wanted you to understand their program and kind of pick them over someone else and explain to you why they were a great project to invest in. But now with more limited resources, we are not just choosing... Good projects to invest in but we're choosing projects that will then beget other results and leverage other funding. Ahead,
0: advice for small groups going after grants from major funders. We'll take you to the statewide conference for Pennsylvania watershed organizations held earlier this week in State College. But first a look at some of the week's environmental energy and conservation news. Pittsburgh will spend a million dollars to mitigate residents' exposure to lead in drinking water, the first stage in what will have to be a much larger and longer-range infrastructure update. Half the money will come from the local gas utility, People's Gas, with the city and its Water and Sewer Authority picking up the rest of the tab. The Safe Water Plan announced this week will pay for the distribution of free water filters for all city residents who request one. It'll also fund the installation of point of entry filters in all public buildings. Mayor Bill Peduto called the move a band-aid, saying it'll take years and millions of dollars to fix the problem, which results not from contamination in the water supply itself, but rather from lead service lines that connect individual properties with water mains. In addition, many older homes still have lead pipes inside. Both the service lines and the interior plumbing are the responsibility of the property owner, and Peduto says that makes it difficult for the city to intervene. Meanwhile, in York, PA, though, the city water company says it will pay for the replacement of customer-owned service lines along with company-owned lines it had already planned to replace. Property owners there will have to request the line replacement. Those who paid for the update out of pocket during the last four years will be partially reimbursed for their expenses. The York Dispatch reports 12% of homes tested last year in York were found to have elevated lead levels. The state Supreme Court is considering whether and how municipal zoning rules may apply to shale gas drilling operations. Four residents of Fairfield Township in Lycoming County sued the municipality and developer over the decision to allow drilling in an area zoned for residential or agricultural use. Commonwealth Court overturned an earlier court decision that likened gas wells to water treatment plants or power substations, which can be eligible for conditional use permits because they provide a public service, even where local zoning codes suggest otherwise. The Pittsburgh Post-Gazette reports the Supreme Court heard arguments in an appeal of that ruling on Wednesday. Funding from PennDOT and the William Penn Foundation will help Philadelphia build a cap over I-95, transforming the space between city center and the Delaware Riverfront into a public park. The project, years in the making, is expected to cost $225 million and create about 11 acres of new green space in the heart of the city. That's according to the Philadelphia Inquirer. Mayor Jim Kenney's budget proposal for this year includes $90 million toward that total. Governor Tom Wolf's budget would deliver another $100 million. Construction would not actually begin until 2020 and would take about three years to complete. The State Department of Environmental Protection is laying the groundwork for what it hopes will be a major investment in solar power in Pennsylvania. DEP is launching its Finding Pennsylvania's Solar Future initiative this week. They'll spend the next two and a half years planning and engaging with stakeholders to eventually create a detailed plan for developing the Commonwealth's solar industry. The initiative aims to exceed 2021 goals established under the Alternative Energy Portfolio Standards Act, bringing in-state solar production to at least 10% of all retail electricity sales. The initiative is being funded with a $550,000 grant from the U.S. Department of Energy. And despite a resurgence of cooler temperatures in March, this winter has been unseasonably warm across the state. And that means an early start to public health concerns that normally wouldn't show up until later in the year. Data from the National Allergy Board show pollen counts in the Philadelphia area have been in the very high range all this week. Allergist Dr. Donald DeVoren tells the Inquirer that they saw a spike in tree pollen earlier this week in the Philly area. That was followed by an uptick in mold spores more recently. In the western half of the state, meanwhile, public health officials are warning that deer ticks may be biting earlier this year, increasing the risk of Lyme disease. Western PA has emerged as a hotspot for Lyme in recent years. Ticks are normally dormant through the winter and early spring, but Allegheny Health Network epidemiologist Dr. Michelle Paulson tells the Pittsburgh Tribune Review this year's milder temperatures may cause the disease-carrying insects to become active much earlier. Watershed Connections Conference was held earlier this week in State College. It was the first statewide gathering of local watershed groups since 2010, and attendees turned out from all over the state. Well, PAC president and podcast field correspondent David Woodwell was there chatting them up. On this week's show, we're going to listen in on some of those conversations. We begin with Brandon Deal of the Foundation for Pennsylvania Watersheds and Kelly Rossiter of DCNR. They were part of a panel of funders hearing mock pitches from conference attendees at Sunday night's Shark Tank session.
2: Supposedly, this Shark Tank thing was your harebrained idea. Is this true?
3: It is true. Sue called me one day and I said, hey, we need to do a different approach to entertainment at conferences. And I think it'd be a good opportunity for everybody to give a little bit of information about grant making and the grant programs that they support, but not in like a lecture format. So I thought that the fun might actually entice people to stick around and stay awake and actually get something out of the presentation.
2: You think it worked?
3: I think it it did work. Uh, The Participants all seemed to be engaged. The people that gave the pitches did an amazing job, and uh, I think the Sharks gave some really good advice that will help them move their projects forward
2: too. Alright, so on there we had a couple of private foundations, but we also had Kelly Rossiter who was representing DCNR, the State Government Grants Program. Was this worthwhile for you two?
1: Yes, I think it was. Um, It helped me to understand what people start with, with their idea and what kind of pointers they might need to help them line their idea up with what funders are offering and what kind of information funders are looking for. Um, And I also realized that one thing that we often have trouble getting from our grantees, our applicants, are those end impacts and metrics. And that seemed to be exactly what all these pitches Um, hadn't considered either, and we were giving them a lot of the same advice. And so I think that made me realize that that is something that uh, applicants need advice on and that they don't immediately think to do that. Because
2: that, I mean, that sort of was a theme that funders are looking for the deliverables, the metrics, what can we show our bosses that got done? And a lot of grantees are sort of intuitively looking saying, we know what we're doing, but don't always state it well. And Brandon, do you have that problem with people on occasion? Absolutely. Present company included?
3: (laughs) Absolutely. I think one of the biggest problems we see is people like to report uh, qualitatively and the feel-good stuff. Uh, So we're doing this for the environment. We're doing this to get people back out into the environment. We're doing it for clean water. Uh, Funders really now are looking for different things. They're looking for quantifiable results. So we're leveraging funds. We're going to restore X amount of miles of stream plant, X amount of linear feet of of buffers. And it's really been a paradigm shift within funding, I'd say within the past five to six years. And it's really the accountability that we have to our funders to ensure that we can put grant money back out uh, into the field is to make sure that we're providing quantitative deliverables versus qualitative deliverables.
2: Well, and on that, Kelly, you talked with a couple of people about planning and about doing plans, concept plans, feasibility plans up front, but you also mentioned there's a point at which planning goes too far. You're a planner. You love planners. A lot of us love doing plans, but how do you figure out where that line is so that you get to what Brandon's talking about, which is those actual deliverables on the ground?
1: Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think it's, it's different for every project type, but I always like to think that as long as you've collected enough information to really feel that you have a uh, pretty low risk with your project, that you really can deliver what you're suggesting. Um, you really do think you're going to get the outcome that you're suggesting because you've done enough research to kind of back that up. I think that's a good point. And also when you've talked to all the key stakeholders, All the key people that you know would need to be involved to make it successful actually have been informed and talked to, and they're on board, and you've um, allayed their concerns. I think that's a good jumping off point. Um, Some are more empirical than others, and you can really draw a line, but I think otherwise it's just. When you feel you have a comfort level that your risk is fairly low and that you really will succeed, um, that's a good time to move forward. And thinking about some of those end-term impacts is one aspect of that. You know, If you can actually say with pretty high confidence that we have these certain metrics and this is gonna be our quantitative outcome, then you've thought it through enough to really move forward, I think. Um, and like Brandon had said, I think Previously, people doing grant applications really just wanted you to understand their program and kind of pick them over someone else and explain to you why they were a great project to invest in. But now with more limited resources, we are not just choosing good projects to invest in, but we're choosing projects that will then beget other results and leverage other funding, and we have to try to use our money much more strategically and more wisely. Um, So I think that's why those end metrics are important.
2: Cool. All right. Last point. There are probably three to four hundred watershed groups, just watershed, not talking about trail groups and everything else, in Pennsylvania, and they're all looking for money. And I go back to one of my favorite quotes from Cheers. We'll make an old cultural thing here. Norm walked into the bar one night, and everybody goes, "Hey, Norm, how are you?" And he said, "It's a dog-eat-dog dog world, and I'm wearing milkbone underwear." <laughs> all right. Do you guys feel that way as funders sometime that everybody is just after you because you look like you've got money?
1: People are always nice to me, and I figure that's why. Um, So, yes, I think people do see that opportunity, and I honestly don't fault them for it because if you're in an organization and you're trying to get work done that you're passionate about and that's important to you, you have to really look at every single opportunity. Um, But I would say that those that are most successful, at least with DCNR um, opportunities, are those that um, are thinking more broadly and working together and that they're really using regional partnerships and leveraging all of their regional impacts um, so that, you know, several people with Milk Bone Underwear are working together and we can give out one grant. Okay,
2: now that we're into the underwear discussion, Brandon, what do you say? <laughs> this is the last word
3: (laughs) I love the analogy and and I think it's fitting Um, I think there are more people definitely more people looking for funding than available funding so if you're going to be that dog eating milk bone underwear you you better be a big dog and you better have some growl and you better have a pitch to be able to to give to the funder and make yourself stand out from the the rest of the crowd and it, it certainly doesn't hurt to collaborate either. I, I think that's become a, a growing trend with funders too, is to ensure that people are collaborating and bringing different resources to the table to ensure that a project is comprehensively completed.
2: Well, well thank you both for doing uh, Shark Tank funders edition, and we may be back at this again in a couple of years. Thanks.
0: <laughs> Kelly Rossiter and Brandon Deal were two of the sharks giving feedback in the shark tank last weekend at the Watersheds Conference. Let's hear now from one of the fish. Annie Quinn is executive director of the Jacobs Creek Watershed Association in Westmoreland County. How was
1: it?
4: Uh, It was very fun. I admit that they were taking it uh, very seriously. You could tell that they were doing it, Brandon specifically, uh, has definitely seen the show. Um, I thought the other presenters did a really good job, and I thought maybe the rain gardens at the end was definitely one of the best of the presentations. So
2: so much of what watershed groups do, and everybody here is doing it too, is look for money, try to figure out what to do. Mm -hmm. Was there any good advice that came out, do you think, from them?
4: Um, I think that we're all a little lost in the same stream of trying to figure out where to move and what to do next. But I think one of the best things to do is have this many people in one room that even if maybe the funders don't have really good advice for me, maybe one of the other watersheds will grab me and say, hey, lady, I have a great suggestion for you. And that's what I'm really excited about. And that's actually one of the reasons I wanted to be one of the contestants, is that I knew the funders, you know, they, they have specific priorities, they have specific budgets, and they have specific approaches proposals but one of these other watersheds is going through the exact same thing as me and I'm hoping they'll come up to me and say hey lady I saw you yesterday this is how you do it and I'll figure it out
2: all right so you are at Jacobs Creek watershed Mm -hmm. you are a staff of one with a whole lot to do and as you said when you were doing this some people have no staff some have more Uh, is there value in getting everybody together like this
4: Oh, yes. Oh, yes. In fact, I wish we, I wish half the conference was just like when we did a strategic plan, we learned from a lady how to do it. And then we all sat around and complained about how we're not doing it, how we're doing it badly. And even just listening to some people give out their mission statements and having a whole bunch of people who all our mission statements are almost identical. I mean, like, how can we word these better? How can we do better? How can we board our boor- build our boards better? How can we get citizen science to do better? Definitely.
2: So what's the biggest challenge you're facing And as a watershed organization, organizationally?
4: Um, I would say right now we have a strong board. Right now we have a strong... Uh, we have a strong amount of funding that's coming from the state and federal level. Hopefully those things are not changing too terribly in the next few years. However, right now, it's just like I said, it's getting people that are volunteers, it's getting people on the creek, and it's its having more than the same 10 people show up to my trash pickups every time.
2: <laughs> Alright, one last thing I have to yeah. point out yeah. is you are a PEC alum. Oh, yes. you, <laughs> you put up with us before and went yes. off to bigger and better things. So, thank you much yeah. for that. No,
4: it was a pleasure. It was a great internship, and now I get to utilize all my skills in managing a nonprofit. So, cool. thanks and good luck. Thank
0: you. Thank you. David also spoke with Vicky Michaels. She's with Independence Conservancy but was also attending on behalf of Clean Creek Products, one of our event sponsors. They're a nonprofit that transforms water pollution into art.
5: We're selling pottery and jewelry that's glazed with iron oxide and manganese oxide, non-toxic oxides that we recover from abandoned mine discharge from our treatment systems. And 100% of the proceeds of the sales of the artwork is donated back to the volunteer organizations like Independence Conservancy that maintain the treatment systems that keep our water clean.
2: That is very cool. So you're mixing the market forces with the restoration and for everybody's benefit where is independence marsh and where do you guys operate
5: independence conservancy is in beaver county uh northern washington county um northwestern allegheny county it's the raccoon creek region we are a watershed based land trust that services the 20d region the raccoon creek region a 330 square mile watershed All right. And as can
2: be heard, you know, lunch in a ballroom is being prepared behind us. And I mean, that's all part of a conference, everything else. So there's about 150 people here. Have you been able to pick up anything, share with folks uh, experiences, or are you just selling away?
5: We're selling away, which is which is great, because every dollar that's spent works for clean water. But, yes, we've been able to network with a lot of folks and see a lot of familiar faces and make some connections and hopefully do some, some good work and gain some inspiration for the tough things that we have to accomplish on a daily basis.
2: So what are some of those things? I mean, Raccoon Creek Basin, uh, you're flowing into the Ohio River. You're sort of at the very western edge of the state. Uh and Raccoon Creek is a state park known for its wildflowers, among other things. So you got a state park sitting in there. What else are you guys uh, sort of dealing with and facing on a day-to-day basis? Uh,
5: the Raccoon Creek region is, is sort of um, at one time considered perhaps an industrial armpit for western Pennsylvania because in our region we had natural resources that built our nation we won two world wars built a country with our iron and steel and glass and our environment has paid the price for that so we have a lot of amd pollution that has to be cleaned up and we're working very hard on that we hope to invite new corporate partners in that work especially shell at the mouth of raccoon creek on the banks of the ohio river we have the new petrochemical facility being built the cracker cracker plant the ethane cracker plant and we're hoping that uh, the folks from Shell will continue to be good neighbors and good corporate partners with us in that effort.
2: Very cool so the last question you're selling these great wares here at the table people are buying them can folks look for you online or anywhere for that stuff as well?
5: Absolutely Uh, www.cleancreek.org.
2: Clean cleancreek.org and that is not a, an unallowed pitch we're making I just want to point out for the world so we're okay. <laughs> thank, you, thank you so much for being here, for doing this all for the watershed and we look forward to much more of it.
5: Okay, most certainly my former neighbor, David.
2: <laughs> <laughs> we are former neighbors, thank you.
0: Next, let's hear from Rebecca Kennedy of Penvest.
2: Penvest is known mostly for big money funding of things like water treatment plants and infrastructure projects, but you're at a conference of really a lot of watershed volunteers and professionals, but, but looking at a much smaller level. How's Penvest get involved in this stuff?
6: So, uh, you're absolutely right. Penvest was on the front line of the implementation of the Clean Water Act, so we don't have green goo coming out into our rivers. But as time has gone on and a greater focus has been made on non-point source pollution, Penvest has been right there at the edge. So, so far this year, I just got the numbers, um, we've funded close to $3 million so far this year of non-point source projects. We've committed to $2 million for... As uh, Secretary Dunn indicated earlier in the day, for the Riparian Buffer, buffer Initiative for next year, um, so we continue to do on-farm type projects, uh, nutrient reductions, riparian buffers, um, and other innovative projects. We have some exciting news that will be coming up probably after our next board meeting about a particularly innovative project, but I'll hold off on that for now.
2: Well, and the nutrient trade—you mentioned the nutrient trading program in Pennsylvania. Mm-hmm is run through Penvest, correct?
6: Absolutely, we have a nutrient credit trading specialist, Rob Bose, who uh, works with our project management team. There are four uh, project specialists in the different regions and then Rob uh, works doing nutrient credit trading in the Chesapeake Bay as well. So they have regularly scheduled auctions. Uh, Don't ask me to explain the details. That's uh, outside my area of expertise. Well, so,
2: I mean, that's big sort of intricate bureaucratic almost stuff which is great how's that tie in relate to you know folks who are trying to do smaller restoration projects or other pieces i mean it's all part of a continuum
6: so uh you are right. Penvest is generally thought of as giving large infrastructure financing chunks to large established organizations, but the program is really underutilized by smaller groups and individuals, nonprofits, particularly those that control land, um, who could come into Penvest for funding to do nonpoint source pollution reduction projects, but just don't. They they tend to think that the barrier is too high, or that it's going to be much more complicated. Than they can handle, um, but that's why they pay me the big bucks is to work with whoever our applicants are, whether it's a small nonprofit or a land trust that controls land or, you know, Greater hazelton Joint Sewer Authority.
2: So, how do people, I mean, you, you talk about individual landowners who are probably in some ways scared of the idea of PENVEST. I mean, it's an acronym, um, it's a big one, but how do people find out more about what you guys do and how they can benefit? And and actually, how everybody can benefit from that.
6: So, um, in the southeastern region of Pennsylvania, the project specialist who works there works a lot with uh, organizations that actually package things like on-farm projects, and they work with farm owners to put PennVest projects on their land. So that kind of niche is already in place for in in prime farmland territory. But there are four of us in the state. Our phone numbers are easy to find. Uh, myself, Dave, um, and Tess, and Dan. Uh, so anybody who goes to the Penvest website can find out how to reach one of us. And whatever region you're in, you can contact us and we can help you figure out whether your project meets our criteria and what we can do to help you.
2: Okay, so that's your day job. Yes. Really quick. What's, your, what's the And I'm sure it's one too, but What's the fun and the passion that keeps you going for other watershed stuff?
6: So my background, my education and background uh, started with volunteer work with the No Nukes Movement when I was about 15 years old. Um, and I went on and got a couple of degrees in this and have been deeply engaged in non-point source pollution uh, watershed organization projects for the last 35 plus years. Um, for me, the thing that really interests me, me the most is the confluence between citizen engagement, local public policy, and on the ground projects that people can see and put their hands on. I think The $10 million projects and the $50 million projects that Penvest does are great, but I think the greatest influence really is when somebody can go to their local park or see something nearby them and think about how they can transfer that to their lives. I I think that uh, we're going to make progress one person and one household at a time. Uh, That's just how I see it.
2: Rebecca, thank you so much for everything you're doing, for being here at the conference, and all the best going forward.
6: Great. Thanks a lot. Take care.
0: Last, but by no means least, let's hear from the headliner, DCNR Secretary Cindy Dunn, who gave the conference keynote on Sunday. I guess the big question is, what's this
2: all mean, bringing these people together and why are we here?
7: Well, as you know, David, Pennsylvania is blessed with 84,000 miles of streams and rivers, and they're some of Pennsylvania's best assets. That's really what distinguishes Pennsylvania from a lot of other places. And while we have a great supply of water, we've got our challenges. And because a lot of these challenges are local, the local watershed organizations are key to cleaning up Pennsylvania's waterways. Um, DEP has said that about 20% of the waterways are impaired. But when you think about the land water connection, DCNR is here because a lot of the problem begins on land. And so we are the big proponents for forestry buffers, uh, for forested buffers along streams, for maintaining forest land cover, we working with conservation landscapes, uh, conserving land, and conserving local parks. There's a lot that people can do um, on the land to improve their waterways. So we're carrying that message here. Uh, we think the partnership with the watershed groups and the, the local uh, conservation groups is so critical. Um, we're happy to be part of this. Well,
2: And this morning in talking with the group, you said something that I really had not thought about before, which is that DCNR's founding, really, in the forests of the early 1900s, wasn't a land issue, it was a water issue.
7: Absolutely, and that's probably why DCNR, uh, DCNR's predecessor agency was called Forest and Waters. Uh, When uh, the the past forest boom of uh, 100 years ago was done, a lot of Pennsylvania's land was laid bare, deforested, cut over, burn over, and sediment was running into the streams and rivers and affecting people's drinking water in the communities and so the impetus to conserve land and regrow the forest was all about the water and it still is. People just don't think of it that way so we're all about uh, cleaning up the waterways and we at DCNR have a lot to offer. We have reforestation, riparian buffer plantings, Uh, we work with and power to deliver sojourns, river sojourns across the state, uh, river conservation grants, and uh, a lot of other ways for people to improve access to water.
2: Well, and uh, so you touched on it, so I'm going to follow it, which is money. Uh, And I think a lot of the groups here and others, it's, it's hard for a lot of these groups to find the money doing everything, but DCNR for many is a critical component of that as both partner and funder. And given that it's budget season, uh, and everybody's always interested in that, overall, what's happening with the DCNR budget and then with the grant programs?
7: Well, like other agencies, DCNR has been asked to really conserve money and to really, uh, you know, pinch every dollar. However, we're able to serve the public and really meet the needs of the public. Our grants programs are intact in the governor's budget. The Keystone Fund is there, the Environmental Stewardship Fund is there, and the governor's proposing $2 $2 million additional dollars to fund a riparian forest buffer program to be added to the money we're already using. So the governor's commitment to help clean up the streams of Pennsylvania that will ultimately benefit Chesapeake Bay and downstream entities is a critical part of it. So we're seeking legislative support for the governor's budget.
2: And you've got a, a, a big goal. I was going to say audacious, but a big goal of I think it's $94,000 acres of additional riparian buffers to get in place in Pennsylvania which is clearly I mean is that all your land? Is that public land? Private land? What what are you guys thinking?
7: Well that's a community goal so the uh, Chesapeake Bay effort set that goal and it's uh, DCNR has agreed to be the synergist to pull everyone together by no means do we think we're the only entity that can accomplish this the county conservation districts, the private land trusts, the local parks, the, the counties, the municipalities Business campuses, everyone will have to get involved. So we're convening a large effort. And uh, like I mentioned, we're also supporting these efforts through grants and programs, as are many other entities like the federal government, DEP, you know, NRCS. So we're, we're part of a large partnership with this big, I'd say it is an audacious goal. So,
2: and a lot of it is focused on the Chesapeake. And you at one point in a former life were with the Alliance for the Chesapeake yeah. in Pennsylvania. And you know, there's more talk about it and focus on it. But you know, in Pennsylvania, is it somewhat of a disconnect to talk about the Chesapeake? Is it really about the Susquehanna in Pennsylvania, or how do you work with folks in the Susquehanna Basin, which yeah. is about half the state, talking about you know where a lot of the protection talk is about something somewhere else?
7: And I would even move upstream, even from the Susquehanna, and say it's about local watersheds, uh, which is why this conference is so exciting. We've used uh, our grant program for funding these statewide, and then the new money is to focus in on that Chesapeake Bay goal because of the uh, importance and because of the timeliness. However, um, the biggest benefit to these actions are really closer to home. And I know from my Alliance days, I used to actually be out there in a crew planting trees, and um, one of the best sales uh, pitches for that kind of work is when a nearby landowner or a farmer sees a project happening and stops by and, ask over the fence, hey what are you doing? Could you do this on my land? So I think we can sell this locally and I think the closer to home the work is coming from the more uh, the more viable it will be to expand this practice. I do think at the end of the day what we're hoping for is a wholesale change in the way people view the land and water connection and that people voluntarily want to protect the waterways. And one of the best ways the average person or landowner can do this is by planting trees along the waterways. And if we just start to think of that as, hey, that's what you do if you have a waterway, uh, then I think we'll really uh, overcome some of the barriers. Well, I will leave,
2: I will end on that very hopeful message and idea. And thank you so much for supporting the conference for everything that DCNR does for water and for land in Pennsylvania. And good luck going forward.
7: And thank you uh, to PEC for organizing and the power. And I think it's been a great conference. And thank you for having us. Our pleasure.
0: That's Peck president and CEO David Woodwell speaking with people at last weekend's statewide watersheds conference in State College. Keep an eye on the PEC website for more from Watershed Connections. We'll be sharing more insights and information from conference presenters and attendees in the weeks ahead. And uh, keep an eye on the website as well for more on what PEC is doing all across the state and to listen to past episodes of Pennsylvania Legacies. They're available there, also on SoundCloud and iTunes, where you can subscribe. And we'd appreciate it if you'd leave a rating and a review. It helps us uh, reach a larger audience. Even better, you can recommend us to a friend. Really, nothing beats word of mouth for getting word out and we'd love to hear your feedback as well you can drop an email to legacies at peckpa.org to suggest a topic or a guest or just tell us how we're doing we'd love to hear from you that's this week's show we'll be back next friday with another edition of pennsylvania legacies until then i'm josh wallerson thanks for listening